0: Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. The Healthcare Sterile Processing Association, HSPA, invites you to log on, listen and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome to the Process This podcast. This is episode 8080. Eight Thanks for joining me. Today I'm speaking with Susan Ober from AORN. Great conversation, so don't miss out on that one. But before we talk to Susan, let's figure out what's on my mind. This is What's On My Mind. So today on What's On My Mind, we are talking about an article that can be found in the AGIC Journal. Now the AGIC is the American Journal of Infection Control. So if you get the HSPA Insights, then you can access this specific article through the Insights. The article can be found in the Insights issue number 79, which came out in January. So this specific article is in the AGIC Journal, and it is in the 2023 January issue, volume 51, number one. And the title of the article is, The Utility of Lighted Magnification and Boroscopes for Visual Inspection of Flexible Endoscopes. Now all the credit goes to the Ofsted Associates. They are always putting out great information to which sterile processing can use and apply in our profession. So thank you to the Austed Associates and crew. So I'm going to summarize some of the information in this article in the abstract here, and then we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the discussion. Ready? Here we go. Introduction. Infections have been linked to damaged or contaminated endoscopes with visible defects. Endoscope Processing Standards and Guidelines state endoscopes should be visually inspected every time they are used. This study evaluated a new visual inspection program using magnification and boroscopes in an endoscopy department that had not previously utilized the tools. The method for the study Site personnel were given visual inspection tools and training before systematically examining fully processed endoscopes twice during a two-month period. A risk assessment protocol was used to determine whether the endoscopes required cleaning, repair, or other actions. Findings were documented using log sheets, photographs, and videotapes. The results from the study were visible damage and residue or debris were observed in 100% of the 25 endoscopes at both assessments, and 76% required repairs. Defects at baseline included scratches, 88%, channel shredding or peeling, 80%, adhesive banding disintegration, 80%, residual soil or debris, which is Uh, White debris, 84%, black debris, 68%, brown, 40%, yellow and green debris, 36%, and last, orange-red debris, 8%. And then they had retained fluid, 52% of the time, and dense, 40% of the time. Findings were similar at the follow-up. Now let's spend a little bit more time into the discussion and see what was going on. During this study, visual inspection with magnification and boroscopes identified actionable defects that could interfere with reprocessing effectiveness 100% of the fully processed endoscopes. Previous publications described defects discovered by researchers rather than nursing staff or reprocessing technicians. In this study, endoscopic personnel mastered the use of visual inspection tools with just a few hours of training and support by the research team. Their new skills in visual inspection allowed them to identify and handle issues that could impact infection control and patient safety. However, routine visual inspections were not always conducted by the endoscopic personnel due to time constraints that were related to staffing shortages and high procedural volumes. I think we can all relate to that. The adhesive banding disintegration found on 80% of the endoscopes was concerning because non-intact surfaces can harbor soil and bio-burden. In fact, yellow soil was observed in adhesive gaps and sharp edges potentially could injure patients or personnel handling the endoscopes. In 2021, the Food and Drug Administration (the FDA) announced a recall due to adhesive deterioration and other damage that may pose a risk of endoscope contamination due to ineffective reprocessing or fluid invasion, and then emphasize that contaminated endoscopes present a risk of infection for patients. That makes sense. During the study, black, brown, and yellow-green debris or residue were commonly found in scratches and distal ends of the endoscope, indicating cleaning failures in damaged endoscopes. There are also tiny white particles found inside channels of several endoscopes, and they were determined to be from lint from drying the exterior of the endoscope with cloths that were not truly lint-free. The novel method of using a boroscope for direct observation during processing activities revealed that manual cleaning with a bristle brush moves soil around inside the channel but did not remove it. Other studies using advanced microscopy of endoscope channels also found brushing moved proteins and microbes around, but did not remove them. Scratches and shredding observed in the channels of almost every endoscope, including those that were recently repaired or refurbished. And this echoes previous findings by others who found that channels sustained damage within a few months of use and accumulated visual defects over time. So, the present study found substantial channel shredding in endoscopes with intact distal ends, which may suggest that visual inspection of external surfaces is not sufficient. Others have found organic residue and bioburden more strongly adhere to the endoscope surfaces with defects than to newer surfaces. Again, researchers from the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, found gram-negative bacteria, too numerous to count in gastroscopes, and determined that cells often reside in grooves or other channel defects which may be favorable sites for buildup of biofilm. The clinical implications of such defects have been described by outbreak investigators. And we all know that those outbreaks are Uh, devastating and we've heard about those. So let's move on. In a 2019 study, they found that 36% of sterile processing technicians performed visual inspection with an unaided eye and magnification and boroscopes were rarely used. And that was at 18 and 14% respectively. Although GI personnel in current studies received training, Magnifying glasses and boroscopes as part of the QI initiative, they missed defects on distal ends of endoscopes, such as a chunk of yellow debris and a retained balloon fragment, which were identified by the researchers. Frontline personnel need better training programs and guidance, including reference tools, illustrations, that describe appearance of certain components. To prevent the use of endoscopes with retained debris or other critical defects, it may be necessary to implement safeguards such as automated uploads of photographs that compare current state with the desired state for certain endoscope components through the use of artificial intelligence. Previous studies have detected viable, culturable microbes, including high-concern organisms and waterborne pathogens, linked to inadequate drying on endoscopes that were observed to have visible defects. It is clear that visual inspection with lighted magnification is a necessary safety timeout to protect patients from injury and infections due to damage or contaminated endoscopes. So infection preventionists have a critical role to play in supporting processing personnel now that standards, guidelines, and IFUs align with strong recommendations for enhanced visual inspection of every endoscope every time. Given the current low guidance adherence in the field, the high documented rate of endoscopes with damage or defects, and constant pressure to move faster, infection preventionists should take the lead in ensuring personnel have sufficient time, equipment, and support to conduct inspections and address findings." That is a really good statement there. Again, a statement that supports all of you guys out there who are reprocessing these endoscopes. So the conclusion for the study, this study contributes to the evidence supporting routine visual inspection using magnification and boroscopes. These tools were needed to identify retained fluid, that debris we talked about, the defects that could impact Processing effectiveness and patient safety. The findings here demonstrate that external inspection alone is insufficient to identify endoscopes with critical defects, and recent maintenance did not guarantee that the endoscopes were free from damage. Processing personnel will need support and collaboration with infection prevention to ensure that they have time and resources necessary to conduct visual inspections of endoscopes in a way that adheres to the standards and enhance patient safety. It's definitely a great article. I I hope you spend some time and go back and review this article. Again, you can find it in the Insights, that episode 79. There's a link that'll take you to it. Or grab your infection preventionist, get their copy of their AJIC magazine. Not only is this a, a great article, but you can use this article to support the procurement of the lighted magnification devices and boroscopes, all of these devices that you can use in your practice. So with that, that's what's on my mind. Our guest on today's podcast is Susan Ober. Now, Susan has an MSN, an MBA, her RN, CNOR, the CRCST. Susan is a clinical educator for the AORN Journal. The AORN Journal is the peer-reviewed monthly publication of the Association of Perioperative Registered Nurses. Her work is focused on editing feature-length manuscripts... Including clinical research, quality improvement, management, and education for monthly and bimonthly columns. As part of the clinical editing process, she works with authors and reviews content for clinical accuracy, competency, organization, and clarity as she draws on more than 40 years of experience as a perioperative nurse. Susan earned her sterile processing certification, the CRCST, when a surgery center where she worked needed the expertise. Susan, thank you for joining the podcast today.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Susan, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? For example, what do you do for AORN?
1: I work in the publications department on the AORN Journal. My title is clinical editor. My job is to review submitted manuscripts for nursing content and to work with a second editor to help the author publish their best article. I also review period briefing section of the journal, and I also act as a resource for other members of the publishing department when they have a clinical question.
0: Great. I understand that you hold the CRCST certification from HSPA. Can you talk about why you decided to get that certification?
1: Yes. Uh, Many years ago, I worked at a freestanding surgery center where we reprocessed our own instruments. I was hired when it was opened. Many of us were unfamiliar with sterilizing instrumentation for shelf life. I took it upon myself to become educated, and I became the on-site unofficial expert. The manager of the sterile processing department of our affiliated hospital resigned and they asked me to fill in for the manager until they hired a new manager. So I was working at the hospital, doing the managerial job, and I decided that it would be a good time for me to become certified.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Can you tell us uh, how you have used the CRCST certification throughout your career? I
1: am a believer that no education is a waste. Like I also have my MBA, which I don't really use, but um, I have the background, I have the knowledge. Uh, same with my CRCST, it broadened my knowledge base. So when I was at my last job in the pandemic hit and we were reprocessing face masks, the manager of uh, sterile processing knew I had the, the background and he came to me and we worked together to set up a process.
0: That's great. That's awesome. Yeah, you never know how you're going to be able to use uh, some certifications that you have. So it's great that you're able to incorporate that. So now you work for AORN as an editor. Tell us about a typical day editing for AORN.
1: I don't really have a a typical day. (laughs) I can plan my day. Like I make a list of what I want to get done that day. But if someone has a question about something, you know, my plans change just like that. I have deadlines that I need to accomplish, but sometimes, you know, you make your plans and then you have to change them to fit the needs.
0: I, I understand that. <laughs> and I think most of our listeners do too. That that's kind of the world we live in where in sterile processing work Things change at a, at, on a dime, right? And you, you have to adapt and sometimes uh, overcome those obstacles. So that's awesome. So I worked as a sterile processing educator. That's what I do at HSPA. But in my previous life, I was a surgical technologist. Now, I'm able to incorporate those skills as a scrub tech in my work at HSPA. Have you been able to incorporate your knowledge of sterile processing in your work? And if so, how do you do that?
1: My background comes into practice whenever I have an article that deals with sterile processing. I have a working knowledge of Amy standards and as a member of HSPA, I have access to their resources. I also have some good friends who still work in sterile processing and I use them as a resource if I have a question or need guidance.
0: Great. This may seem kind of like a basic question for you, Uh, But what is the difference in writing and editing? Do you need a different type of skill set?
1: Yes, I believe they are different skill sets. As a writer, you would identify a topic, do your research, and then compose the article. As an editor, I read what someone else has written, I check their references to ensure that what they say the reference states is really so, and with the second editor, we review the article to make sure that the information is presented in a way that is clear for our readers. Okay.
0: Now, as part of my job, I I get to be a contributing author to some of the materials that HSPA publishes. I consider myself more of a technical writer, meaning I know the information, but the editing skills are not really my strong suit. In fact, Usually when I write something, it just comes back red. You know, somebody had that red marker and it bleeds red, right? When you edit a piece, is there a process that you go through to make folks like me look good?
1: We have a style guide that outlines journal style and we use this guide to edit the manuscripts. There is a process that we use to take the original manuscript into a publishable article. This is a team effort. The clinical editor works with a second editor who is an expert in journal style. And before publication, the article is also reviewed by the managing editor who checks the article for consistency, clarity, and punctuation.
0: So again, when I write, I tend to write how I talk. It's very conversational. This usually doesn't work well when writing articles. Can you give our audience some tips, maybe some tricks that you see as an editor that can help them better structure their writing?
1: Yes, AORN has an author guideline that helps authors write to journal style. It helps with references, order, tables, and figures. We also have a template for the different types of articles, such as quality improvement, education, research, that helps the authors with structuring the manuscript. Authors can also read previously published articles to see what we published to get a good idea.
0: Oh, great. That's good advice. Hey, let's pause for just a second. So are you looking to get a continuing education credit, a CE for this episode? Great. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes log on to the MyHSPA website and make sure you use the code MAGNIFICATION. Again, the code for this specific episode is MAGNIFICATION. Now let's get back to our conversation. So as an editor, do you have any pet peeves, meaning things that you see all the time that you wish folks would really correct before it got to your hands? Uh, maybe something that would make your job maybe just a little bit easier. For example, the other day I learned about in-dashes. Now, I had never heard of an in-dash before and I had an editor say, this is an in-dash, can you use it in these situations? And and Now I know and I know how to use it. So do you have any of those little pet peeves or something that you'd like to see?
1: Reference citing. So uh. journal style is to use primary sources. What that means is you cite the original source for the information. So, for instance, if Amy states you should follow manufacturer's instructions for use to know how long you should sterilize an instrument, you would use the Amy ST79 as your source, not another article that states that Amy said what Amy says. Also, if you say that Amy ST79 is a source for your statement, a fact, it must be in there. And yes, we do check every single citation.
0: (laughs) So so there's no getting away with anything, right? Slipping something in there. You can try. You can try. (laughs) Great. So I did some digging and it turns out that you are a writer after all, right? Uh, You are a contributing author for the former communique and now the process. Can you talk about that experience writing for the process?
1: Several years ago, I um, right actually, right after I got my uh, earned my certification, I got a message from um, what was then Isham and asked me if I would be interested in coming to Chicago to write. And what a great opportunity! So, I was allowed by my employer at the time to um to go to Chicago, and it was a great experience. I met some wonderful, intelligent people. I co-authored two articles. One of them was on the use of uh, personal electronics Mm -hmm. in the the workplace. And the other one was on surgical attire. I actually presented one of the articles to the staff members in the sterile processing department in my last place of employment.
0: Well, that's awesome. And they're great articles because I did get a chance to read those, so thank you.
1: It was very interesting. It was very educational. Again, another opportunity that you take and you never know where it'll lead.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So last question, Susan, as an editor, do you have any other advice that folks who are interested in writing anything that you might want to tell them?
1: My answer is just do it. Find your topic, something you're passionate about, write your article and we will help you get it published.
0: That's great. Well, Susan, it was a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for your insight and the time you've taken to uh, speak with us today.
1: It was my pleasure, John. Thank you.
0: All right. Well, that music means only one thing, and that is we are out of time for today. Again, thank you, Susan, for being on the show. Thank you guys for listening to the show. HSPA episode number 80 is in the books. Hey, are you looking to get a CE for listening to this episode? Well, you are in luck. To get the CE, simply click on the link in the episode notes that's going to take you to myhspa.org. And all you have to do is enter the code that is mentioned in the podcast again listen to the entire podcast enter the code that was mentioned and wow there you go you have your ce guess what in case you didn't know each podcast episode is on demand so when you're ready for us we'll be there for you as always stay classy and we'll see you next time